This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, whether it's a movie or a radio show, you can't beat getting off to a good start. And I can't think of too many better starts than the John Williams fanfare that started the whole Star Wars phenomenon 40-odd years ago. 42 years ago, actually, pushing 43. Apparently it was on May 25th, 1977 that the original Star Wars premiered at Hollywood's Grauman's Chinese Theater. And of course... Numerous of you, dear listeners, are excited at the prospect of seeing the ninth and possibly final segment of the nine. Back in 1977, everybody was taken in by this, this, uh, this beginning of what was advertised as episode four. And indeed, it was subsequently explained that the original Star Wars trilogy were episodes four, five, and six of a nine-part series, although for many for many years back in the 80s, they were denying that there were really going to be nine parts. There, there may be six, but nah, they're not going to be nine. But that is what George Lucas had in mind all along. And so it is. We're going to see part nine, at least some of us are, this Christmas holiday. I think I'll be numbered among them, although I must say my love of the franchise has, has deteriorated tr- tremendously over the years. I, I enjoyed the, uh, the the original immensely, as I did Part Two, the the Return of the Jedi. But you know, even Isaac Asimov, who who by the way loved the Star Wars series, noted that um, science fiction on the big screen really amounts to blowing stuff up. And man, did they fall into that trap worse and worse as things went along. The first two, you know, are charmingly based around these two goofy robots, which makes the whole thing pretty entertaining. And yes, the plan, as I understand all along, was to have the only two characters that are, that are in all nine episodes be the two robots, R2-D2 and C-3PO. By the way, Anthony Daniels, the man inside C-3PO, was apparently very put off when he was first offered the role of being a robot back in the 70s, noting that uh, I was a serious actor. I wasn't going to be in some weird American movie as a robot, yet my agent insisted. His companion, Kenny Baker, the little person inside of the R2-D2 robot, (laughs) said about Anthony Daniels, he's been such an awkward person over the years. If he just calmed down and socialized with everyone, we could make a fortune touring and making personal appearances. I've asked him four times now, but the last time he looked down his nose at me like I was a piece of whatever and said, I don't do any of these conventions. Go away, little man. Well, somewhere along the way, Anthony Daniels changed his mind. I know that uh, I attended a a rather wonderful presentation of the Star Wars music, uh, John Williams' music, down in Fresno some years back. And who do you think was hosting the event? Anthony Daniels. So apparently he now does do some of those conventions. Did he host that event in character? No, he was uh, as a real person up on the stage. But anyway, I thought it'd be appropriate to talk a little bit about uh, this phenomenon of American culture. 
And what better source to go to than the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series, in this case, the 18th edition, which had a little section on this. The first was titled, This Isn't the Theater You're Looking For. Anyway, as mentioned just a moment ago, that original premiere was at Grauman's Chinese Theater, 1977. And when part three, or I guess part six, depending on how you want to count it, the first trilogy, final part, I guess it's Revenge of the Sith, was going to appear. This was in, I guess, about 2006. The Star Wars fans were convinced that uh, its premiere would, of course, naturally be at Grauman's Chinese Theater. So they started lining up seven weeks in advance. The problem with this was the film was not going to premiere at Grauman's. And matters were complicated by the fact that it took weeks (laughs) for someone at Grauman's to come out and inform them of this fact. Here's the part I like. Unwilling to admit defeat, 11 indignant fans decided to stay put. Fan Sarah Sprague was quoted as saying, We've heard this all before. She was speaking of the false rumors, or I guess you'd say fake news, that had circulated prior to the first two prequels. But it turned out this one was not a rumor. 20th Century Fox had signed a deal with another theater. A fan organization called LiningUp.net staged a protest said one angry member, Grauman's is the Star Wars mecca. The studios knew we were going to line up here, made the decision to show the movie elsewhere, allowed us to line up for weeks, and then told us for sure the movie wouldn't be playing here. Then they offered us seats at a nearby theater, only to retract the offer a week later. It isn't right. We just want to see the movie. Just as an aside, this does remind me of a touchy-feely session I was having as a medical intern to try and prepare us for the uh, travail of the year ahead. And the person leading the, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, encounter group, was explaining along the way why it was rats were smarter than college students. As he explained that a rat put in a maze will eventually stumble upon the piece of cheese placed there and go like, whoa, cheese. It'll work the maze faster and faster to get that reward of cheese. And then when the experimenters remove the cheese, the rat, disappointed though he may be, well, just sort of looks around, thinks, oh, no cheese, darn it goes on with life. College students, in an analogous situation, (laughs) after being used to working a maze and finding cheese, or whatever reward was provided, will, when the reward is removed, get very indignant and in a very pouty fashion standing around going, hey, we're we're going to wait here till the cheese shows up. And no, I have no way of knowing whether Sarah Sprague was among those college students taking part in these experiments. But I have to say, the line of reasoning does sound the same. The studios knew we were going to line up here, made the decision to show the movie elsewhere, and no doubt failed to provide them with any cheese along the way. And since we're in a Star Wars mode, uh, there's a bit of Star Wars trivia from yet another Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. In this case, the one before that, the 17th edition, which is just, I think, too good to go unremarked upon. So let me quote from it. Released in May 1977, Star Wars was one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Cast members became instant stars and any toy or product with the Star Wars logo flew off store shelves. Fans couldn't get enough. Still, the producers were worried. The sequel wouldn't come out for three more years. How could they make sure fans wouldn't lose interest? Director George Lucas came up with an idea. The Star Wars Holiday Special. 
This was a two-hour TV show to air near Thanksgiving back in 1978. Lucas wrote a story about how the Star Wars characters celebrated Christmas, or Life Day, as they called it. The plot of the program would follow Chewbacca's family, his wife Mala, son Lumpy, and elderly father Itchy. And no, I'm not making these up. As they awaited Chewbacca's return home for the holiday. But Han Solo and Chewbacca would be held up by Darth Vader, bent on ruining Life Day for the entire universe. They'd fight him off and make it home to Wookiee World just in time for Life Day. Lucas sold this idea to ABC. Who wouldn't want a chance to take on Star Wars? It might have been a Christmas classic. But by the time production was scheduled to start, Lucas was too busy with the early stages of making The Empire Strikes Back. Thus, ABC left the holiday special in the hands of a team of novice staff writers who had worked mostly on short-lived TV variety shows. And I think you can sense the narrative by now, dear listener, that this isn't going to go well. Noted Uncle John Jabna of the Bathroom Readers series early on, it looked like the show might be pretty good. <laughs> Almost all the original cast agreed to appear. The production team behind Star Wars was on board for special effects and makeup. There would be cameos from some of TV's biggest stars, like Harvey Corman of The Carol Burnett Show, Diane Carroll from Julia, and Maud's own B. Arthur. As Darth Vader? Uh, and not, no. Advertisements promised never-before-seen action sequences of Han Solo and Chewbacca flying through space fighting Darth Vader's spaceship. It looked like a sure winner. Again, I kind of have to say, ha. The Star Wars Holiday Special aired 8 p.m. November 17, 1978. All expectations instantly evaporated during the first 15 minutes which, believe it or not, consisted of Chewbacca's family arguing in Wookiee language without subtitles. Noted the Bathroom Reader series, that foreshadowed the rest of the program, which was in fact a tacky variety show with a Star Wars theme. It had no plot. It mostly showed Chewbacca's whining, grunting relatives watching 3D television with sequences that included... Beatrice Arthur in an off-key song and dance number, a virtual reality erotic dance from Diane Carroll, a performance of Light the Sky on Fire by the Jefferson Starship, and, I kid you not, a cooking show with a six-armed Harvey Corman in drag. It all concluded with a Life Day Carol sung by Princess Leia to the tune of the Star Wars theme song. Actress Carrie Fisher later confessed she was highly medicated during the filming of the special. <laughs> Noted the bathroom reader, as the show progressed and each sequence became more outlandish than the last, most of the 20 million viewers flipped over to Wonder Woman. Anyway, despite the initial large audience of this holiday special, the reviews were awful and the true fans hated it. Most notably among them, George Lucas. He was furious that the special had corrupted his beloved characters. Because of his anger and his clout, Lucas managed to prevent the Star Wars holiday special from ever airing again. He assumed the show would be an unfortunate but quickly forgotten misstep in his career. But that's not what happened. Back in 1978, at the beginning of the VCR revolution, many viewers taped the show, which set into motion a vast bootleg network that widely distributes this otherwise forgettable flop 
to this very day. Although most copies are of very poor quality, they can still be obtained cheaply over the internet. George Lucas was forced to give up on his goal of cleansing his reputation by erasing the Star Wars holiday special from existence. If I had the time and a sledgehammer, he once commented, I would track down every bootleg copy of that program and smash it. Well, George, we have to know, what did you expect when you let ABC turn this over to a bunch of variety show writers? There's a little down about the fact that the sun is down, the sun sets so early. I think at our latitude, the sun is setting at like 4.48 here on the first week of December. But the good news is that due to an oddity of uh, celestial mechanics, while it is true that for the next couple of weeks, the days are getting shorter, they don't get shorter on an even basis. The earliest sunset of the year is about now. Even though the days are going to get shorter for the next couple of weeks, the sunsets are not going to come any earlier. In fact, they will start retreating now. It's only a couple of minutes, but you can take some comfort in knowing that, you know, the sun's not going to disappear any sooner from this point forward. This is the worst it gets. I'm sure you feel better already. We mentioned a couple of weeks back about the, the passing of real-life spaceman Alexei Leonov, Radio Parallax's favorite cosmonaut. The startling little item that appeared in his obituary, which was that when he was in a motorcade that entered the Kremlin back in 1969, gunmen opened fire. A shooter wanted to kill Leonid Brezhnev. Leonov took two bullets in his coat, but fortunately not in his skin. I was and remain startled to, to learn about this incident, and we've asked you, the listenership, to see what you can do to find out about it, but no one has done so yet. So won't somebody take some time to please research this and give us a report we're going to do it ourselves, but we, we could use your help. An assassination attempt on Leonid Brezhnev. Man, who knew? And a month or so ago, we reported about a couple of uh, conflicting items. The, the renewed interest in killer asteroids, which uh, attract more and more headlines, it seems, because there are killer asteroids out there, and we should find out about them. But uh, the search is going to be complicated by the fact that uh, a lot of telecommunications companies like SpaceX want to send up 40,000 satellites to orbit the Earth. We thought that was a pretty bad idea, but maybe it's time to take the back seat to columnist for Astronomy Magazine, Bob Berman, also a previous Radio Parallax guest, who in his Strange Universe column mouthed off on this very issue. Noted Bob Berman, it's June, and I'm planning the Strange Universe column for the November issue. I decided to make it topical and have it jibe with Halloween and trick-or-treat. I'll call it, What Scares Astronomers? Subject decided, it's time to take a break from all this hard work, so procrastinating, I opened today's paper. Jumping out at me from the page is the headline, Astronomers Fear... Dot, dot, dot. Astronomers Fear, what perfect synchronicity. Then I see what the world's astronomers are fearing. It's no joke. SpaceX, along with several other companies, is launching or planning to launch thousands of new orbiting satellites. There will be more visible satellites than naked eye stars. The sky will be despoiled forever. It seems like the worst ever Halloween trick. But said Bob Berman, I don't want to make this page depressing, so I'll modify the message. He notes that, happily, satellites are only visible when they're in sunlight. They orbit in darkness 
throughout the night between October and February over mid-northern countries. For the rest of the year, they only stand out against a black sky during the first and final 40 minutes of full darkness, meaning you won't see satellites 80% of the night, to which he added, so we can adapt. He notes that what might turn out to be a bigger problem is the installation everywhere, it seems, of, of yard lights that throw intense glares in all directions. My good friend Jerry, who lives out in Knight's Landing, noted that one of his neighbors recently put up such a light pollution factory. Speculating about it, Bob Berman said, yeah, you go talk to the guy, but he's got infamous anger management issues. The alternative astro solution is putting up a fence to block the glare. Alas, we live in one of these communities where the local zoning board dictates every construction detail and the kind of high fence you envision was last granted a permit in 1792, said Berman. It was just this fear that drove me to purchase enough acreage around my house that only a new penitentiary could create illuminatory anguish. He said that specific example comes to mind because I was actually hired to teach astrophysics at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for four years to select inmates needing science credits to get a college degree. A guard always stood outside the room during lectures, noting it was a truly captive audience. The warden gave me permission to bring in a telescope and take the class into the yard to look at planets. You think your sky has a bad glow? I actually once asked if we could kill the lights for half an hour. Although I was joking, I'd hoped the impossible might somehow unfold. Anyway, Berman notes there's more good than bad on the horizon for backyard observers, we hope. The year's best meteor shower, the Geminids, is improving over time, which is a very strange thing. Apparently, meteor showers do rise and fall, and, and apparently the Geminids is on the rise, getting better as the years go by. Better, of course, means more and brighter meteors. Anyway, we encourage you to check them out. Since we're still in an astronomical mode, I would like to refer to the issue of Astronomy magazine in which Bob Berman's column appeared. Its special feature was the Apollo 12 50th anniversary. Now we regard Apollo 12 as kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of Apollo missions. Everybody knows that Apollo 11 was the first one to put down and of course made history. Apollo 13 had all that drama of the crippled spacecraft, you know, barely making it around the moon and bringing the astronauts back alive. Very dramatic. Pretty good movie, too. I'm pleased to note that I was able to hear astronaut Jim Lovell talk about Apollo 13 at the Scottish Rite Center some years back in Sacramento. But it would turn out Apollo 12 had its own bit of misfortune. When they were on the moon, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean were hoping to broadcast their adventures back down to Earth, but unfortunately, Bean pointed the camera at the sun and it fried the lens, which was, well, a bit of a public relations disaster for NASA, which is really too bad because looking back on it, Apollo 12 had quite a few high moments. Back in the early 1960s, as they were ramping up to Apollo, we sent a bunch of landers on the moon. At first, we just crashed them into the moon, and if you were watching... Back in those days, you saw these images of the moon getting bigger and bigger and bigger until all of a sudden splat. That was pretty dramatic, but they thought, you know, let's land one softly, keep the camera going and have it point around, which they did with several, several what were called the surveyor landers. NASA thought it might be cool to land Apollo 12 in the same little lunar crater that the surveyor had landed in, 
and then cut chunks of it off and bring it back to Earth to see how well it had withstood its several years on the lunar surface. And they did it. They landed right in the same crater, went over and took off 10 kilograms worth of material and brought it back to Earth. Pretty cool. Especially considering that uh, when the when the spacecraft took off, this huge ionized uh, stream of gas behind it created a pathway for lightning bolts to come down out of the sky, and two of them, in fact, struck the Saturn V rocket as it was rising from the Earth. When the spacecraft got into orbit, they did what checks they could perform on it and decided, well, looks like things are okay, you're go for the moon. A lot of controllers, however, were quite concerned about the possibility that lightning strikes could have compromised the parachute package. It might have made it fire early, and therefore leaving no way for the astronauts to safely get home. In this scenario, the lunar control module would plummet into the ocean at an uncontrolled high-velocity dive and definitely kill the crew. But thinking about it, the controllers decided this was an unlikely possibility, and as well as one that had absolutely no solution, so they decided not to tell the crew about it. Yeah, looks good from here. Anyway, this issue, November of Astronomy Magazine, has a bunch of 3D photos of the Apollo 12, uh, which which uh, uh, I don't think they included glasses to view them with. Anyway, the potentials there might, might make some pretty interesting viewing, 3D images from the lunar surface. It is kind of a shame that not more uh, fuss is made over Apollo 12, launched 50 years ago last month. Maybe Pete Conrad, who was admittedly a bit of a jokester, might have taken it a little more seriously. Apparently when he first climbed down the ladder, he decided to say, whoopee, man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. Anyway, in thumbing to the magazine, I see that uh, the 3D viewers, which are available in other books, uh, Brian May of, of Queen, who's also an astrophysicist, put out a book called Mission Moon 3D Book. And uh, apparently if you have that book and its projector, you can then use these images to look at the moon in three dimensions. I, I may just give that one a whack. All right, in preparation for this show, we often rely upon The Economist magazine and The Week magazine and New Scientist magazine and of late, The New Yorker magazine because they're four great sources of information. And we often enjoy the letters sections of all these magazines. So I was taken by the fact that writing in The New Yorker about an article in that magazine about The Economist Jack Winkler of London, England, had this to say. Writing as a socialist, who has nevertheless enjoyed reading The Economist for 50 years, I thought that Pankaj Mishra's critique of the paper was not incorrect, though he failed to mention some of its admirable aspects. Yes, the editors parade their, quote, liberalism, unquote, in editorials, but these are easily skipped. The bulk of each issue is filled with objective, exemplary reportage from places never mentioned in most news magazines. Even more distinctively, The Economist correspondents write with wit and humor. In these diverse times, it is important to remember that reading The Economist does not amount to incessant indoctrination. On the contrary, one is making oneself more informed about the world through a different lens, an experience that is both enjoyable and educational. How often do you associate those words with economics. This really kind of strikes home for me because 30 years ago, good Lord, 30 years ago, yours truly embarked upon a journey that took him around the world, 28 different countries, a year abroad. I thought during that year I would be ill-informed about what was going on back in the United States of America. And guess what? I found out that I was probably never better informed 
than when I was reading foreign publications, like The Economist. Being perhaps somewhat a bit delusional in my youth, I thought that Newsweek and Time were pretty good sources, or at least decent sources of news. They were hard to find overseas, and one day walking in the streets of Delhi, I saw a copy of The Economist and snagged it. And I guess I've been hooked ever since. But anyway, back to The New Yorker. The current edition, which I have in my hand, uh, features a cartoon by Gahan Wilson, who passed away last month. I'm sure he had a backlog of a few cartoons before he checked off the planet, including the one in The New Yorker. It isn't one of his best, by the way, and in fact makes me want to cite another cartoon in the same issue. The New Yorker has always been noted for its great collection of cartoons. In this one, in a play off the Impossible Burger, which uh, they're making a big effort to try and get to the public via the Burger King Corporation. And by the way, we're not that wild about the concept of the Impossible Burger since it does use genetically modified yeast to make the proteins and heme molecules that make the faux meat look real. But back to the cartoon. There's a street vendor in New York. He's got an umbrella. He's got a stand. And the sign says, The Improbable Burger. With the subheadline, Is it meat? We doubt it. But I am, I admit, a huge fan of, of great cartoons. I have several collections of them, which I put together over the years. In the three minutes I, I have left, I'm going to try and do the impossible and translate some of Gay and Wilson's cartoons into radio. In the first, a grumpy-looking man is sitting in a high chair looking at the TV. A football game is on, and the announcer is announcing, Well, folks, it looks as if old Mish is really getting trounced by those Reds. The man picks up the remote, punches a button... And in the last frame, the man's still in the chair, the TV's still on, but the announcer's saying, well, folks, it looks as if those Reds are really getting trounced by old Mish. Very Gain Wilson. In another, a tiny, wrinkled-up, elderly man who looks to be about two and a half feet high and perhaps 115 years old is slumped down his chair in a TV studio, and the announcer is asking him, I take it, Senator, then you approve of the present seniority system. In another classic Gay and Wilson, a mafioso-looking character is stepped up next to one of those horse costumes which two men climb inside of. There's a jockey sitting on the back of the horse looking rather smug, a large wreath on the horse's back, and the mafioso character saying, My apologies to you guys. I never thought you'd get away with it. Back in the 70s, Gay and Wilson did a regular column in National Lampoon magazine. It was called Nuts. And one of my favorites in panel one... The narrative is, recall how it was when you'd been sick out of school for a long time and when you got back, everybody was ahead of you and you understood absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing. In the next panel, the teacher's intoning, very well, class. Yesterday, we reviewed the application of the fifth rule of Carthaginopolis and its relation to the lateral desiccation of all right triangles. The kid's staring down at the textbook going, Jesus. Next panel, teacher, Jessica, can you tell me the proof of the Gaetic theorem? And she's going, oh, yes, Miss Spade, it's equally. The kid's going, it got worse, lots worse. Fourth panel, any doubts or questions ought to be answered by this simple diagram which fills up the chalkboard. The kid's going, I used to get some of this stuff. Anyway, I'm not sure I'm doing it justice, but it was vintage Gay and Wilson, and it was funny, trust me. And finally, my very favorite all-time Gay and Wilson cartoon. This, I believe, appeared in Playboy sometime in the early 1970s. It was a full-page color cartoon. A man is standing with several other men looking rather disconcerted. 
They're all dressed in white, and they all appear to have wings on, but they're attached via a backpack. Above all of their heads are halos, but the halos appear to be constructed of bent clothes hangers. One of the guys is blowing his nose. Another one's picking his teeth. The third one got it, has his hands in his pocket as he's slumped over with a cigarette dangling out of the side of his mouth. They're located inside of some sort of structure, which above it has a sign that's partly knocked down. The letters, which you see from the rear, spell out H-E-A-V-N, but the E is broken. A flask of whiskey lies discarded in the corner, as does a pack of matches. The protagonist in this classic game, Wilson is saying, somehow, I thought the whole thing would be a lot classier. Anyway, I'm not sure I did that one justice, but uh, I'll give you an IOU for a heaven or hell joke in a future installment. At which point I'll probably say a word or two actually about Gayan Wilson himself, the man. But let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 